Welcome to the Beach House 34 podcast, where we dive into the world of the unexplained, the mysterious, and the eerie. Gird yourself to listen to stories about haunted houses, things that go bump in the night, and make you question your mental faculties. Sure to make you look over your shoulder at every dark corner. Here's your host, Christine Worth. Hello and welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. And first, I want to say hello and welcome, a warm, warm welcome to all the new subscribers to this channel. Thank you so much for listening. Second, please consider giving a like or a comment on this episode. It helps the channel so much and I would be forever grateful. Thank you. Now, today's episode deals with the paranormal and touches on some pretty heavy subject matter. So I want to give you a word of warning up front. If subjects like the paranormal, the devil, and or religious rights bother you, you may want to back away from this one. Stories like these have been known to trigger some pretty scary nightmares. With that said, let's continue. In today's world, it's nothing to tune into YouTube or even your favorite network and watch a show about ghost hunters. Those who enter a haunted location in order to gather uh, evidence of the afterlife. At times, these YouTubers or even network shows will use the D word, demon. Even in today's world, that term isn't taken lightly. By 1987, you did have Unsolved Mysteries, which was pretty groundbreaking at the time, but mostly you relied on the network news or newspaper articles to hear about these kinds of odd and very scary stories. As much as we can distance ourselves from what may happen to other people, whether that be about true crime cases, serial killers, or even the paranormal. I mean, you know, we are just, quote, watching the show after all. Nothing is going to reach through your screen or your speakers to get you. You know, at least that's what we hope. Maurice Frenchie Therio had to live this nightmare every waking moment. What he had endured for a lifetime is something that no one should have to go through and would quite literally scare the shit out of anyone. Now, if the name Frenchie rings a bell to you, you likely, most likely, watch the movie The Nun 2, and that's part of the Conjuring Universe set of movies. However, in this movie, while some of what you see of Frenchie is true, Most of it is not. Now, this is not to say that some pretty terrible things happened to Frenchie in his life. They did. They just weren't included in that particular movie. Now, when you hear Frenchie's story, you might want to brush it off and say, hey, it's all made up or that person was just faking. You know, often when people view phenomena right in front of their eyes, they'll attempt to rationalize it thinking that what they saw was, hey, it's just your imagination. 
or when something is too horrific to deal with mentally, often people will say that, hey, that person was a really good actor or somehow a really great con artist. It's been said that, quote, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. And this is a line made famous by the movie, The Usual Suspects. And, as we'll find out, also by Pope John Paul II as well. What I'm about to share with you is the true story of Maurice Frenchie Theriot, as told by Ed and Lorraine Warren, world-famous demonologists, newspaper reports, and a book entitled Satan's Harvest, which was written by two journalists. Now, these journalists were able to get a firsthand account from those involved in Frenchie's story, as well as view the pictures and the videos provided by the Warrens of Frenchie's ordeal, including his exorcisms. And yes, it was exorcisms, plural. So with that said, let's get on with the story of Maurice Frenchie Theriot, a story of a man who from childhood was thrust into a life of evil only to have it follow him until the day he died. In May of 1982, Maurice Frenchie Theriot and his longtime girlfriend, Nancy, packed up and moved to a farmhouse in Waitley, Massachusetts. They were on a tight budget, and Maurice had experience in farming, so he decided to set up a tomato stand by the roadside, and he set this up during the tourist season in New England, which helped provide them some income. Now, even though New England winters were harsh, Maurice had a greenhouse on the property where he grew his tomato sprouts in the wintertime. This way, when planting season arrived, they'd be all set. Nancy was certain about one thing when it came to Frenchie. He had a real passion for discussing the weather, especially when it was bad weather and especially when it came to talking about the winters of his childhood. They were both in the living room with Nancy absorbed in the newspaper as the snowfall outside steadily accumulated, reaching several inches deep. Frenchie, on the other hand, he had gotten up and started walking towards the kitchen. Nancy, still engrossed in the paper, was particularly interested in checking the weather forecast, especially given this ongoing snowfall. Upon discovering that there was more snow coming, she called out to Frenchie to share the news, but he didn't respond. He had just been seated right next to her just moments ago. Nancy yelled again for Frenchie, but still nothing. He was just there and she couldn't figure out where he had gone. She got up from her seat and made her way through the kitchen, yet there was no sign of Frenchie. She walked into the bedroom and still found no trace of him, but an unpleasant smell filled the air. Nancy then asked her daughter to help her, but she couldn't find him either. Nancy had no idea where he could have gone. She swung open the front door and shouted into the outdoors. It was only then 
that Frenchie hollered back, saying that he had been out by the barn. He trudged his way back to the house through the deep, deep snow. Nancy had never heard him go outside, yet there he was. She also couldn't help but notice that there were no footprints leading to the barn. While it was snowing, yes, which could have covered his tracks, it really seemed unlikely that the fresh snowfall had covered them in the very short amount of time that he had been away. When Nancy asked him about it, Frenchie was confused. He explained that he'd spent the entire day out in the barn, and naturally, the tracks would have been covered by the falling snow by the time he got back inside. Nancy knew this could not have been possible. So who exactly had been inside the house with Nancy? Or who exactly was outside in the barn? Frenchie returned to the house, his clothing covered with snow, and made a beeline for the kitchen. Within just moments, he walked from the kitchen with a steaming cup of coffee in his hand. Nancy couldn't but help but be suspicious because it seemed impossible for him to have brewed coffee that quickly and his clothes were now miraculously snow-free. However, the snow could have melted, so she decided to approach him and reached out to touch him. To her surprise, he felt entirely warm, not like someone who had just come in from the cold. As she stood there, she once more detected the unpleasant odor that she had first noticed in the bedroom. She asked Frenchie why he wasn't cold. He looked at her, wondering what she was talking about. Then, without acknowledging her question, he simply resumed the conversation about the weather that Nancy had originally asked him about just minutes earlier. This would not be the first time when Maurice Frenchie Therio seemed to be in two places at once. During this same time that Nancy had found Maurice outdoors, Frenchie was having a very difficult time sleeping. He had started experiencing recurring nightmares where a man inserted pins into his back. One morning, he found it impossible to return to sleep after he had one of these unsettling dreams, so he opted to get out of bed. As he did, he inadvertently woke Nancy up who then looked up at him and let out a startled scream. She had noticed something on his back that appeared to be writing. When she said something to Frenchie, he gave her a look as if he didn't believe her. She told him to go look in the mirror. When he turned his back to the mirror, he was as shocked as she was. There were four words written on his back. The words were in French, his native language. Now, Nancy couldn't read French, and Frenchie's ability to read was limited, which is something we'll get to later. So Frenchie asked her to sound out the words for him. When she did, he explained to her in English that the words meant, the door is open. Now, Maurice, he had his upbringing in a family of 15 in Van Buren, Maine. 
Back in 1946, this small town wasn't particularly prosperous. And like most families in the area, they primarily grew potatoes, just as Maurice's family did. Since their family was quite large and finances were tight, Maurice, although he did go to school, had to wear the same shirt and pants day in and day out. As his clothes started to wear out, his mom would patch them up and he'd continue wearing the same outfit. Now this caused Maurice to be bullied while in school and it didn't help that Maurice was older than most of the kids in his grade. This was primarily because as the oldest boy in the family, he had the responsibility of handling most of the chores on the farm. After he was born, three sisters followed in the family and following the girls, there was another boy followed by three more girls and eventually five more children were added to the family, bringing the total number of children to 15. But none of them experienced the same treatment from their father as Maurice did. Because his father had such high expectations for him on the farm, Maurice frequently had to miss school, resulting in his having to repeat a grade or two. While other kids progressed in age and education, Maurice remained stuck in his academic journey. When Maurice was six years old, there came a year when he had to walk home in the middle of a blizzard. While other children were being picked up by their family members, Maurice was expected to walk home. The snowfall was so heavy that he couldn't see what lie ahead of him. And the wind was gusting so fiercely that no matter how much he tried to shield his face, it didn't give him any relief. As he kept continuing to walk, his hands and his feet grew numb. And halfway home, the snow had piled up to his knees. Desperate to stay warm, he decided to find somewhere to kind of hide out. So he found a snowbank and he took shelter behind it, hoping to just rest for a minute. As he did, the cold overcame his small body and he gradually began to fall asleep. Out of nowhere, a man appeared before him. This man had long hair and kind, welcoming eyes. He was dressed in a simple white robe. Without hesitation, he scooped up the young boy and carried him. The next thing Maurice remembers was that he was back home, tucked into his own bed. His mother assured him that he had made it home safely and had found him on the front porch. Deep in his heart, Maurice firmly believed that it was Jesus who had come to his rescue. Imelda, Maurice's mom, never did see who had brought her son back. However, she was aware that Maurice had been walking home alone in the blizzard. So she had prayed fervently and asked God to watch over him. One spring, when Maurice was nine years old, his father acquired a new tractor and he instructed Maurice to, quote, drive it or else. Regardless of his efforts, Maurice could not operate the tractor just simply because his body was still too small. Yet, his father, Maxime, held a different belief. 
Maxime had strong expectations that Maurice should grow up to focus solely on farming and assisting the family, no matter his age. On this particular day, when Maurice couldn't operate the tractor, his father slapped him in the face out of frustration. Maxime was an exceptionally cruel man, as hostile as they came. Maurice never experienced any form of recognition or even a simple warm gesture from his father. Despite having several other sisters and brothers, Maxime withheld affection from them as well, but none of them received the kind of hostility that Maurice did. Even as a young child, Maurice frequently hid from his father, dreading the possibility of being subjected to physical punishment, punches, or even blows from a two-by-four. Maurice's mother, Imelda, did her utmost to support Maurice, fully aware of how cruel Maxime could be towards him. She frequently positioned herself between Maxime and Maurice, shielding her son from his father's blows, even at the cost of enduring the physical abuse herself. And despite these incidents occurring often, the family never talked about the topic of Maxime's violence within the household. Many times, Maurice would notice his father entering the barn and spending hours inside. Now, the family was strictly prohibited from entering the barn whenever Maxime was in there. However, one day, Maurice's curiosity got the better of him, and he tried to quietly look and see what it was that his father did inside that barn. What he witnessed was beyond the understanding of a young boy. He tried to leave without making any noise, but his father heard him and turned around to find Maurice inside the barn with him. Now, Maurice, he fully expected to be hit or punched or something, but instead, Maurice's father took an unexpected turn and told him to come further into the barn and to watch his father closely. He then coerced Maurice into carrying out the same reprehensible act. Maurice understood the wrongness and the evilness of it all. Upon completing the act, Maxime told his son that if Maurice was going to watch him, then Maurice had to do exactly what he did. He issued a chilling threat, warning Maurice that if he said a word to anyone, Maxime would go so far as to kill him and conceal his body in a manure pit. For three long years, Maurice remained silent. His mom tried quite often to get him to talk about what his father did alone in the barn, but Maurice was paralyzed with fear and he didn't dare say anything. Now, Imelda, recognizing that Maurice had been grappling with some kind of issues for quite some time, eventually made the decision to investigate her husband's activities in the barn as well. 
Maurice watched as his mother cautiously approached the barn. He silently prayed that she would not be discovered. Unfortunately, she too was found, and Maurice overheard his father shouting at his mother, hurling abusive words and threats. His father called her a bitch and demanded to know what she thought she was doing. And then in a chilling tone, his father said, I'm going to kill you someday, woman. I swear I'm going to kill you someday. Maurice could discern from his father's voice that he wasn't making an empty threat. Maxime was convinced that it was Maurice that had told his mother about what was going on in the barn. So he made it his purpose to find his son, who he believed had betrayed him, when he discovered Maurice hiding in his bedroom. He took off his belt and subjected Maurice to such a severe whipping that it drew blood to the point where it began to seep into Maurice's mattress. Throughout this painful ordeal, all Maurice could think about was how much he hated his father. When spring finally came around, this is when the planting season started. And for Maurice, it was a time he always dreaded. Not only did he have to go back to school, which he actually didn't mind because he could get away from his father, but as soon as he returned home, he was expected to work on the farm. He never got a break, not even on weekends. The farm work forced him to take time away from school, which is what caused him to have to repeat grades and why he was so much older than others in his class. Even some of his younger sisters were outpacing him in school. Maurice was open to just about anything besides working alongside his father on the farm. One day, Maurice, now just barely a teenager, had a problem starting the tractor. And as expected, his father placed the blame squarely on him, berating him with words like, you no good bastard, can't you even start the damn machine? Maurice offered an apology and explained that he was doing what he always did. There just seemed to be an issue with the tractor. His father then jumped onto the tractor and pushed Maurice off of it. Maurice fell off and hit his head against a large rock on the ground. As he staggered to his feet, he felt dizzy and noticed he had blood coming from somewhere on his face. He began to make his way toward the house, but looked back only to see his father speeding off towards the field. His father didn't even bother to look back to see if Maurice was all right. It was at this moment that Maurice uttered the words that might have determined his destiny. He said, I'd rather work for the devil than work for you. And he screamed this over and over. Now the following day, despite the very high likelihood of Maurice having suffered a concussion, his father barged into his room very early and ordered him to get out of bed and begin working. His father again demanded that Maurice start the tractor and Maurice was scared. And of course he was. He was afraid it wouldn't start and that he would again be blamed for it. As he climbed onto the tractor, 
Maurice mentally ran through the usual steps. There was one step that he sometimes had problems with, but for some reason, on that day, he didn't have an issue. And surprisingly, nothing posed a challenge for him that day. From that day forward, Maurice never faced another issue with the tractor. Even plowing the fields seemed to be easier than they ever had been. It was as if there was a guiding presence alongside him, assisting with the work. When Maurice was about 14, during the winter months, the family relied on hauling logs in order to make ends meet since they couldn't grow potatoes at that time of year. And on one very cold day, heavy snow was falling. Maurice thought that they should wait until after the snowstorm and said something about this to his father. His dad then said, this just shows how stupid you are. Don't you think that people are going to need those logs to stay warm? His father then insisted that Maurice continue loading logs onto the truck for delivery. That day, Maurice's hostility towards his father intensified, if that was even possible. However, he found himself trapped between his intense loathing for the man and his paralyzing fear of what his father might do to him. Now, ultimately, fear won out and he continued loading the logs onto the truck. As Maurice approached a log to lift it, he was amazed to find out that it felt as light as a feather. He repeated this process with logs that should have been incredibly heavy, yet they didn't seem to weigh much at all. Maurice was convinced that he had some form of assistance that day as he loaded the logs onto the truck. So quietly, he would murmur, a thank you to whoever or whatever was lending a hand. This marked a significant turning point for Maurice. Whenever he required assistance, he simply asked for it and he often received it. When Maurice reached the age of 15, his father insisted that he quit school, saying that the only path for Maurice was to become a farmer. His father needed his help and he couldn't afford to hire anyone. Now, Maurice's mother, she did try to intervene and even offered to do Maurice's work for him so that he could still continue to go to school. However, Maxime simply told her to shut up and that he'd made the decision and it was final. So from that day forward, Maurice never returned to school. Maurice was seething with anger and he could not wait for the day when he could leave his home. So what he did is he came up with a plan. He knew that he had three years left until he turned 18. And at that time, he could then enlist in the army. As long as he could take dealing with his father until then, he would have the chance to leave the house and create his own path in life. When that day finally arrived, he made his way to the recruiting office and happily enlisted he including passing the army physical with flying colors. Upon coming back home, he knew he was going to have to break the news to his parents. When Maurice got home and his father finally saw him, he was livid. He'd been trying to find Maurice all day and demanded to know where he had been. Maurice couldn't help but smile a little bit 
as he told his father that he had enlisted in the army. In response, Maxime simply laughed and told him that he would never get into the army. Although Maurice had already passed all the physicals, he had all all of the paperwork turned in, of course he was going into the army. The next day, Maurice was still excited about his choice. And when he woke up, his father wasn't anywhere around. But Maurice didn't really care. It was nice and quiet in the house without him in there. When his father did finally return home around noon that day, he directly came up to Maurice and handed him a sheet of paper. The paper falsely claimed that Maurice had failed the Army's physical exam, even though he had passed it. Maurice's dreams of joining the Army were shattered. He would not be able to enlist as he planned. Later on, Maurice discovered that the Army doctor who had initially approved him had a long-standing friendship with his dad and had tampered with his paperwork. As time went on, Maurice found himself waiting once more, this time until he reached the age of 21. It was then that he could finally leave the house for good. On the day that he turned 21, he packed his bags and noticed that his father was already out working in the fields. He was relieved. His father knew that he was leaving, but he didn't care. And Maurice really didn't either. His mother, on the other hand, was having a really hard time with it. She didn't want him to go, but she understood that he had to. Maurice ended up boarding a bus and eventually arrived in New Britain, Connecticut, where he found employment in a factory. However, this factory job only lasted a couple of years because he wanted to be able to work outdoors, and this job required that he be inside all of the time. He also missed his family, which led him to make the decision to return to his hometown. Now, upon going back to his hometown, Van Buren, Maurice ended up having a chance run-in with a girl that he had gone to school with, Sarah, and this is not her real name. And they quickly rekindled their connection. Now, Maurice wasn't about to head back to his old home, and he told Sarah he didn't have any place to stay. So what Sarah did is she extended an offer to stay with her and her grandfather. Now, initially, the grandfather was hesitant, but after Maurice volunteered to assist with some chores and work around the house, he reluctantly agreed. So Sarah's grandfather, he finds out, has a daily drinking habit and seldom bothers to change his clothes. Nonetheless, it provided a living arrangement for Sarah as she completed her schooling. Now, Maurice couldn't help but notice that whenever he and Sarah spent time together, her grandfather seemed almost envious. One day, when Maurice got home earlier than usual, he found Sarah in tears. Now, concerned, he tried to get Sarah to talk about what was bothering her, but she wouldn't talk. Shortly after this conversation with Sarah, her grandfather entered her bedroom and was surprised to find Maurice in there. Maurice asked Sarah's grandfather, what was wrong with Sarah? And the grandfather only said, I don't know. Don't worry about her. She's okay. Sometimes she gets crazy. You know women. He then left the room, slamming the door. 
The following day, Sarah's grandfather told Maurice that he had to leave. He didn't want to, and Sarah, he knew, didn't want him to either. But it was her grandfather's house. So as Maurice packed all up and he's heading out the door of the grandfather's house, uh, two police officers arrived and asked to speak with Sarah's grandfather. Now her grandfather, after seeing the police, started to make a run for the back door, but didn't make it. And the police easily took him into custody. Maurice had no idea what was happening. It was then that Sarah arrived, driven by a friend. Sarah then told Maurice the truth. For years, she had been forced to pretend to be her grandfather's wife, which included engaging in intimate relations with him. Maurice got pulled into the police station for a chat about this whole situation, and Maurice truly had no idea what had been happening. The police finally let Maurice go, and as he was walking out of the police station, he ran into Sarah's grandfather, who was just being brought in for questioning. As they passed each other, the grandfather said something to Maurice, but it didn't sound like him. It sounded deeper and stranger. He said, quote, you two will never be happy together. You'll never make a life together. I curse you to the devil. Sarah and Maurice decided to get married. And afterwards, they moved to Holyoke, Massachusetts, which was about 500 miles away from his family home back in Van Buren. It didn't take long for them to start a family. First, they had a son, then a daughter, and then not long after, another son. The marriage, however, began to show signs of stress. Maurice was upset that Sarah couldn't keep the house clean, and she explained that it wasn't easy taking care of three small children. It didn't take Maurice long to point out that his mother had 15 kids, yet still managed to keep the place clean. Why couldn't Sarah do that as well? These arguments happened on a constant basis. And one night after Sarah and Maurice were in bed, it began again. As the argument continued, all of a sudden Sarah screamed and pointed at the crucifix that they had hanging in their bedroom. It had begun to bleed. At that moment, both Sarah and Maurice dropped to their knees and began to pray, forgetting about the stupid argument they had just been having. Things calmed down for about a week until Sunday rolled around. Maurice had been excited about having one of his favorite meals, but Sarah had forgotten to thaw the meat that was needed. Instead, she served leftovers, and this sent Maurice into a rage. Maurice began to yell and scream at Sarah. But this time, he'd had enough. Maurice slammed the table and declared that he couldn't take it anymore. He stormed off into the bedroom where the crucifix had started bleeding once more. It felt like a never-ending cycle. Arguments between Sarah and Maurice, followed by the bleeding crucifix. Maurice couldn't shake the feeling that it was a really bad omen for their marriage. Then Maurice found out that his father had decided to also move to Massachusetts because potato farming wasn't doing well and they were losing the farm. 
he needed to move somewhere else where he could farm successfully and make a profit. Now, Maurice's mom was very excited about this. She had missed Maurice and her grandchildren, and it was actually Maurice's mom who had brought up the idea of moving to Holyoke, and surprisingly, Maxime, Maurice's dad, agreed. During this time, while in jail, Sarah's grandfather had passed away. And not long after Maurice's family had moved to Holyoke, things between Maurice and Sarah really, truly began to fall apart. Maurice blamed it on Sarah's grandfather's spirit. Never mind that these things had been occurring even before he had passed away. Maurice and Sarah decided to split up. And Maurice stayed in Holyoke while Sarah and the kids moved in with Sarah's aunt in Maryland. While Sarah was in Maryland, Sarah ended up in the hospital with a severe illness. Now, even though they had separated, Maurice still felt very close to Sarah and he wanted to visit her, but he couldn't get off work long enough to do so. So what he did instead is he went over to his mother's place. And when he got there, he knocks on the door and she opens it and she was shocked to see him because she thought he was down in Maryland visiting Sarah. Maurice was totally confused about this. He had just had a vivid dream about visiting Sarah in the hospital, but it had just been a dream. His mother then told him something that completely shocked Maurice. She had just spoken with Sarah and Sarah said that Maurice had just left the hospital. This marked the first time Maurice seemingly managed to be in two places at once. Now, despite their best efforts, Maurice and Sarah, they just could not patch things up and they did end up divorcing. Maurice knew it was truly over when Sarah took the kids and moved all the way to Texas. That's when Maurice crossed paths with Mary, again, not her real name. Mary was a single mom with a son of her own, and not long after they had met, they decided to go ahead and get married. And the marriage was really just a matter of convenience. Maurice had been away from Sarah for some time, and Mary needed a father for her son. So together, they decided to settle down on a small farm still in Holyoke. After nine years together, they too decided to end their marriage. Now, Maurice felt as though he couldn't really open up to his wife, especially when it came to all of the bizarre stuff that was happening to him. One of these things was that one autumn day, as he walked through the vegetables on their farm, he nearly tripped over a cross that was sticking out of the ground. He had no idea where this had come from, and as soon as he picked it up, his eyes felt strange. He began rubbing his eyes and then noticed blood on his hands. At first, he thought that he'd cut himself, but when he ran inside to look in the bathroom mirror, he saw blood coming from his eyes. He tried to stop the bleeding, but it just wouldn't quit. The blood dripped onto his shirt and he couldn't help but just stare at himself in the mirror. He couldn't find any kind of cut or any injury that would have caused it and was surprised to find that he didn't feel any pain. He had been in the bathroom for quite some time, 
when Mary began knocking on the door wondering if he was okay. Maurice said he was fine. He had just cut himself shaving and left it at that. Now, for some time, Mary, in another instance, had been planning a special night out, something that they had actually both been looking forward to. It was a local dance. And when the night came, Maurice just didn't feel like going, but Mary had been so excited, he decided to go ahead and go with her. Now, instead of partying into the wee hours, which is something they normally would have done, he decided that he wanted to go home around 10 o'clock. Mary wasn't very happy about this, but eventually did get into the car with him. During the drive, Maurice remained unusually quiet. As they neared a sharp curve that had trees on either side, Maurice never slowed down. Mary started yelling, but it was as though Maurice couldn't hear her. Just before they were about to hit a tree head on, Mary grabbed the wheel, steering the car away. And instead of crashing into a tree, they ended up hitting a wall. Now, remarkably, neither one of them were hurt. Following the crash, Maurice appeared to snap out of his trance and asked Mary what had happened. Mary told him everything that had just happened, but Maurice didn't even remember leaving the dance. Mary began to worry that he might be losing his mind. She'd noticed other signs that something was wrong she had witnessed Maurice mistreating or scaring their animals, yet he would swear up and down that he would never do such a thing. And Mary knew deep down that was true. He would never hurt their animals, but she couldn't deny that she had seen him do it. Maurice's behavior was putting a real strain on their marriage, and eventually Mary decided to call it quits for good. Maurice, too, had a nagging sense that something was off, but he didn't really want to have to see a psychiatrist, what he called, quote, head crackers. Instead, he wondered if he could just simply reach out to the same kind of help that had made a difference in his childhood. After Mary and Maurice went their separate ways, Maurice decided to relocate once more, and this time he went to upstate New York. And this is where he met his third wife, Nancy. Now, Nancy was different and strong-willed. He loved her from the moment he met her. Nancy wasn't a fool. She made Maurice work for their relationship, and Maurice adored her for it. After a few months, they were inseparable. They decided that they wanted to move to Massachusetts. And when they did, they ended up leasing a small farm. This again put Maurice closer to his father and his mother. He was happy to be closer to his mother, and even though you'd think that he would be bothered by being closer to his father again, surprisingly, they had begun having conversations. It was never a truly close relationship, but his father did appear to be willing to at least have brief conversations. Whenever Maurice did pay his mother a visit, His father would often make an appearance, and it always made Maurice uneasy. He was used to his father's explosive personality, so when he tried, when his father tried to act somewhat normal, it put Maurice a little on edge. He'd never seen his father this way, and he couldn't shake the feeling that something was lurking just beneath the surface. Fortunately, while with Nancy, 
Maurice hadn't experienced any other bizarre occurrences in quite some time, and that gave him kind of a sense of hope. Nancy and Maurice had their eyes on a little farm that they were thinking about buying, and it happened to be in Waitley, Massachusetts, not too far from where they were currently renting. While discussing the idea of buying the property, they stood on the front porch of their rental home. It was then that Nancy thought they should take a moment to pray on the decision, and she removed a cross from around her neck that had been given to her by her mother, and she held this in her hand. Shortly after Nancy had taken out the cross, Maurice's demeanor instantly changed and looked at Nancy as if he wanted to kill her. Without warning, Maurice used both of his hands and pushed Nancy off the porch. He then ran to where she had landed, yanked the necklace off of her, and threw it deep into the woods. Nancy was in a state of shock. As Maurice returned to the porch, he started muttering, I have her by the hand. I have her by the hand. When Nancy confronted Maurice about what had happened later on, he had absolutely no memory of it whatsoever. This strange event was just one in a series of events that Nancy would witness during their time together in their marriage. Nancy and Maurice did ultimately make the decision to buy the farmhouse in Waitley. However, not long after, his father said that he was going to relocate their family to Oklahoma, which is where many of Maurice's sisters had moved. Maurice was upset. He didn't want to be so far away from his mother, and he had a bad feeling that it would be the last time he would ever see her. Nancy and Maurice did end up buying the farm in Waitley, and his parents had now moved on to Oklahoma. So during this time, one night, Nancy was awoken by sounds. She thought that it sounded like whispering from downstairs. She shook Maurice and told him what she was hearing. He, too, heard the whispering, but he couldn't make out what was being said. Maurice headed downstairs to investigate, but he couldn't find anything. Both of them tried to get back to sleep, but the sounds came back. Nancy thought it sounded like two people having an argument. So Maurice again went downstairs to check, but again found nothing. Early the next morning, they were awoken by banging on their front door. It was the police, but all the police would say was that Maurice was to contact his sister in Oklahoma. It was later released in a newspaper article that Maurice's father had shot and killed his mother and then turned the gun on himself. After dealing with the devastation of losing both of his parents, his mother especially, life continued on for him and Nancy. One day, as Nancy and Maurice were heading on or off to grab some groceries, they had made it as far as the truck and Maurice suddenly became dizzy and had to lean against the truck. Out of nowhere, and in a deep and eerie voice, he uttered, your father doesn't have much time left. Then he collapsed to the ground. Nancy rushed to his side 
And when Maurice eventually came back to his senses, she questioned him about why he had said what he did. Once more, Maurice had absolutely no memory of what she was referring to. Nancy called her father right away, and he said he was just fine, but Nancy still had this really strange feeling. Since being with Maurice, a number of strange things had happened, so many that Nancy began to make note of them in a notebook that she kept hidden underneath their bed. She wrote about strange knocking sounds coming from the walls, about putrid odors of decay that vanished as quickly as they appeared. She wrote about loud, stomping footsteps that startled both of them awake in the dead of night and explained unexplained, heavy breathing that came from nowhere. With so many of these strange things happening often, Nancy told Maurice that they should talk to the local priest, Father Boyer. Maurice was relieved to have someone to talk to about what had been happening with him. Now, Maurice and Nancy, even though they were living together and had been together for some time, they hadn't yet gotten married. Both of them were a little superstitious and believed that the reason that so many strange things were happening was because Nancy's mother, who had passed away, was upset that they weren't married. When they reached out to Father Boyer, they explained the strange occurrences that had been going on, and they suspected that it was the spirit of Nancy's late mother behind it. These events had been causing lots of arguments between them, although Nancy didn't tell Father Boyer everything that had happened. So the very next day, Father Boyer officiated Nancy and Maurice's wedding. The couple held the hope that this marriage would put an end to the strange happenings in their home and the unsettling experiences that Maurice had been enduring. They couldn't have been more wrong. About a month after their wedding, Maurice found himself needing to head outside and cut up a fallen tree on their property. It had been raining and things were a little slick outside, but he wasn't worried. Then out of nowhere, he was hit with a vision of the chainsaw that he was holding, slipping from his grasp and causing him harm. In the blink of an eye, the chainsaw slipped from his grip and landed on his foot, though it somehow shut off after cutting halfway through his boot. He didn't feel any pain, but he could see blood seeping out from his boot. He decided to repeat the words, I didn't cut myself, I didn't cut myself, I didn't cut myself, over and over again. He was able to make it to the front step of the farmhouse and carefully removed his boot. His sock was drenched in blood, but to his shock, when he peeled off the sock, there was no sign of any injury to his foot. While most people would have been shocked by this, he wasn't. Maurice firmly believed that the reason he had escaped injury was due to him repeating, I didn't hurt myself. However, not long after this incident, a string of fires began to break out on his property. There were three fires in total, each in different spots. There was one inside the house itself. 
There was another one that severely damaged his tomato stand that was his source of income. And the third was inside a storage shed, which was outside. The local police chief had his suspicions that Maurice might be the one behind the fires in order to cash in on insurance money. It wasn't the first time that the police had been called to the property. In previous instances, the couple had reported hearing what they believed to be intruders creeping around the outside of their farmhouse, but the police never found any evidence to support their claims. Following the fires, the occurrences within the home began to multiply at an alarming rate. Crucifixes on the walls started bleeding, something that had happened with Maurice's first wife. Objects that had no business glowing in the dark did so. It was becoming an immense strain on the family. When Christmas came around, they both decided that they needed some cheering up. And so they decided to put a large cross with lights on it on the front of their farmhouse. As Maurice climbed the ladder to set up the lights, the ladder started to shake violently. There was nothing at the bottom of the ladder that should have caused it to shake. And Maurice had made certain that it was properly secured. The shaking became so intense that Maurice lost his balance and fell to the ground. Now, this first fall didn't stop him. He was determined to get these lights up. So he again climbed the ladder and again, the ladder began to shake. Again, he fell to the ground, but this time he landed on his head. When he tried to get back up, the lights that he had in his hand started winding themselves around his neck. Panic seized Maurice and he cried out for whatever it was to leave him alone. After a moment, the lights loosened and just fell to the ground. Now, although Nancy and Maurice hadn't been consistent churchgoers, they started feeling the need to attend more regularly uh, due to the unsettling events happening in their home and to Maurice specifically. So one Sunday, they were running late for church Maurice had rushed up the steps and turned to wait for Nancy. Out of nowhere, a powerful force shoved him so hard that he fell down four of the stone steps leading into the church. Despite this, Maurice remained determined to enter the church. Once inside, he made sure that he used as much holy water as he could to cross himself before he entered. Nancy and Maurice had decided that they had to have another conversation with Father Boyer. Despite their best efforts, strange things were still happening in the farmhouse, and they were convinced that it was not Nancy's mother's spirit. Nancy ultimately told Father Boyer everything, laying out the full story and this took her nearly three hours to recount. Father Boyer, after hearing the entire tale, promised to visit their home and the following day to perform a blessing. So the next day, he showed up and true to his word, he went through every room blessing every nook and cranny. Now, after some time had passed, 
Another instance of Maurice seemingly being in two places at once happened. This time, there were four witnesses, including Nancy, who saw it happen. The group of them were all sitting and talking when they all suddenly spotted Maurice walking outside completely naked. Now, Nancy had witnessed this type of behavior before and instructed her daughter to go upstairs and check on Maurice. There he was, sitting on the side of the bed, putting on his shoes. His eyes, though, were bleeding again. Nancy reached out to Father Boyer once again and told him about this most recent incident. Father Boyer, unsure of how to handle the situation, sought the guidance of a couple who did know, Ed and Lorraine Warren. Upon contacting the Warrens and discovering that this was likely not just a haunting, but something far more malevolent, the Warrens, along with a volunteer who had spent 13 years as a police detective, paid a visit to Maurice and Nancy, accompanied by Father Boyer. During their visit, Nancy took the lead in the conversation as Maurice sat there, appearing to be in some sort of trance. As Nancy began to talk about Maurice's mother, Maurice began to cry, and it was the detective who first noticed his bloody tears. Nancy mentioned that this often occurred when Maurice was angry or upset. Father Boyer gave Maurice a special gift, a blessed cross that he could carry with him at all times. After their intense conversation, the group gathered their belongings and decided to part ways for the time being. They needed some time to process and wrap their heads around everything that they had just learned. Their next meeting took place at Father Boyer's church, where the Warrens began to suspect that Maurice might be experiencing demonic possession. However, before they could make any definitive conclusions, they knew they had to conduct a thorough investigation. If their suspicions were correct, it would entail a complex process to involve the church, but convincing the church to take action wouldn't be an easy task. In August of 1986, Pope John Paul II, in one of his final sermons, affirmed the existence of the devil, describing him as a, quote, cosmic liar and murderer. He went on about the subject, saying that according to sacred scripture, particularly the New Testament, Satan and evil spirits wield influence over the entire world. Satan's primary role is to tempt individuals toward evil, often by manipulating their thoughts and desires to lead them away from God's law. In some instances, evil spirits may exert control over a person's body, a condition referred to as a diabolical possession. The presence of Satan becomes more pronounced when people and societies distance themselves from God. Satan is characterized as a liar and the father of lies, residing in denial of God and spreading falsehoods about him. His influence can be subtle, making it challenging to discern, 
as he strives to convince people of his non-existence. However, this does not negate human free will and responsibility or the redemptive work of Christ. All that being said, the Catholic Church nevertheless um, approaches claims of diabolic possession with skepticism and treats them similarly to claims of miracles. Symptoms of demonic possession closely resemble those of mental illness, and because of this, the Church requires a variety of tests to be performed before granting permission for an exorcism. Malachi Martin is one of the foremost authorities on the subject, and he outlines some characteristics of a possessed person, including a repulsion towards religious symbols and truths, a foul stench, extreme cold, unlined facial features, very smooth skin, or distorted facial features, unexplained weight gain, which would render the possessed person immovable, levitation, and the ability to reveal secrets that no one else would know. Additionally, the possessed person may display strength surpassing that of multiple individuals combined and the capacity to communicate in an unfamiliar language they have never studied. In order to determine whether a person is genuinely possessed, a church must carefully observe and make a qualified decision, a process that can be quite time-consuming. In Maurice's situation, this principle held true. The church typically avoids the sensationalism often associated with such cases, and as we've just discussed, verifying that a person is genuinely possessed and in need of an exorcism involves a thorough and rigorous process. And one of the prerequisites in this process is for the person to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Now, psychiatrists are also generally hesitant to suggest that someone might be experiencing possession. Part of the reason is the historical association where individuals that suffered from epilepsy in the past were often misinterpreted as being possessed. So Maurice had an appointment scheduled with a Catholic psychiatrist, and this psychiatrist had been arranged by the church in order to assess Maurice's condition. Now, present at the meeting, which took place in Father Boyer's office, uh, were Maurice, his wife, the Warrens, and Father Boyer. Now, naturally, Maurice felt very apprehensive about the evaluation. However, he clung to the cross that had been given to him by Father Boyer, which provided him with some comfort. Together, Father Boyer and the Warrens gathered at the church for the scheduled meeting. Nancy and Maurice were the last to arrive, and Maurice eagerly displayed his cross to Father Boyer. He took out the cross from his pocket, and he had to show it to him. And he was so excited that he had it, and to everyone's astonishment, it suddenly hurled itself across the room towards Father Boyer, narrowly missing his head by mere inches. The cross then collided with a glass-fronted bookcase behind Father Boyer and caused it to shatter. The group turned their attention back to Maurice, who was looking down at his hands, 
that now had burn marks where the cross had been. Now, once the psychiatrist arrived and had a discussion with Maurice, it became evident that he attributed Maurice's issues solely to psychological factors, firmly expressing his disbelief in any notion of possession. The doctor also made it apparent that in no case would he ever determine that someone was possessed. All characteristics that resemble possession are simply mental health issues. Nancy and Maurice felt utterly defeated. They didn't know where to turn next. The Warrens, on the other hand, were seething with anger, finding out that the doctor did not come at the case with an open mind, but rather already had his mind made up before even visiting with Maurice. As they left, Maurice suddenly began to scream in pain, clutching his back. When he lifted his shirt, they all saw a sizable cross burned into his skin. The Warrens believed this was the conclusive evidence they required to persuade the psychiatrist. So they went back into the church, and upon returning and showing this to the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist then asked Maurice how he had done this to himself and pulled off this trick. Even Father Boyer was taken aback by the psychiatrist's unwavering skepticism. The Warrens were determined not to give up, and Father Boyer recognized that action needed to be taken. With Nancy and Maurice back at home and waiting to find out what their next steps would be, a few days had gone by without any incidents. It was then that Nancy made a frantic phone call to the police, not sure what to do. The police chief, as skeptical as the psychiatrist, arrived as Nancy, who was in a panic, opened the front door. All she did was point to the bathroom where the officers were confronted with a shocking scene. Blood was spattered all over the mirror. It was all over the bathtub and it covered the floor. As a result of the police being called, this incident became part of public record and the story quickly garnered attention from various newspapers. This sudden notoriety turned the Thoreau home into a macabre tourist attraction. Headlines ran in newspapers, headlines like church weighing exorcism, Satan isn't in our town and police chief discloses demon case. In another newspaper, it was reported that a cartoonist had drawn a cartoon depicting Nancy and Maurice in an American Gothic style pose standing in front of their farmhouse with ghosts and demons in the background. The caption read, quote, nice folks, kids as ugly as sin though. It's also mentioned that this same cartoonist received a phone call from an individual claiming to be Maurice, who warned him that he didn't know who he was messing with. Intriguingly, within a week of this incident, the cartoonist's father suffered a severe stroke. Whether this was merely a coincidence or something more remains a question. Now, following the publication of the newspaper articles, 
the couple endured a long period of harassment. They received frequent hang-up phone calls and passing cars often carried people that were yelling hurtful remarks at them from the windows. As Holy Week approached, which begins on Palm Sunday and concludes on Easter Sunday for Christians, Father Boyer contacted the Thoreaus, urging them to come to the church, but he didn't explain why. Ed and Lorraine Warren would also come with them. Now, Maurice felt a little hesitant. He was still haunted by the earlier encounter with the first psychiatrist at the church, fearing that maybe another psychiatrist might be waiting for him there. Now, previously, prior to this, he had chosen to be voluntarily institutionalized at the Worcester State Hospital for evaluation and the assessment had found nothing wrong with him. This time, upon arriving at the church, they were introduced to a bishop whom Father Boyer had brought in. Now, after talking with Maurice, the bishop informed him that he was going to offer a prayer for him. The Warrens understood that this was a form of exorcism, but were deeply concerned for the bishop's safety in case Maurice turned hostile. As the bishop initiated his prayer to St. Michael, Maurice's appearance underwent a startling transformation, as if it were being molded into something else entirely. Then, in a voice that was clearly not his own, Maurice uttered, I am in the depths of this man's soul, and I will have it. Undeterred, the bishop continued his prayer while the voice within Maurice persisted, defiantly declaring, You cannot destroy me. You cannot make me leave. The bishop remained unwavering and persisted with his prayer. Suddenly, Maurice collapsed, and the bishop began to sprinkle him with holy water, using so much that Maurice began became drenched from head to toe. Strangely, or maybe not so strangely, Maurice had no recollection of the incident, but reported feeling better afterward. Upon concluding the meeting, Nancy and Maurice were elated. They truly believed that their ordeal was finally over, and they were so delighted that the Warrens then invited them out for lunch. Maurice couldn't stop expressing his gratitude toward the bishop. However, during lunch, without any warning, Maurice's facial expression and voice underwent a dramatic shift, and he uttered, I'd like to spit in both your faces. The Warrens emphasized to both Nancy and Maurice that their work was far from over. They warned them that no matter how dire the circumstances might become, they must never, under any circumstances, confront the evil force that had come into their lives. For a brief period, things appeared to have calmed down. Nevertheless, Nancy and Maurice were not alone. The Warrens had enlisted a group of trusted volunteers to stay with them. And these volunteers were tasked with observing and documenting events. And they all took shifts to ensure that the Thoreaus were never left all alone. Now, one fateful evening, a member of the Warren's volunteer team 
made a distressing phone call. Lorraine answered the phone and could hear Nancy's panicked cries in the background. Nancy was screaming, oh my God, oh my God, stop these things from flying around. Maurice had been laying in bed when suddenly objects in the room began to fly around on their own. Due to the newspaper reports and the strange events surrounding the Thoreau's, um, local shops in town actually would no longer extend the family credit. And instead, they insisted that they pay for everything in cash. They believed that Maurice had just simply lost his mind. On another day, on what seemed like just a simple, ordinary day, Nancy was in the greenhouse caring for the tomato plants when she heard loud banging noises coming from inside the greenhouse with her. Now, this occurred three separate times. Assuming that it might be Maurice, she called out his name, but didn't receive any response. As she approached the source of the noises, she didn't find anyone there. Nancy then walked outside and confused, she watched as Maurice then pulled up in his truck. She told him what had just happened in the greenhouse and he became infuriated. Nancy understood the warnings not to confront whatever malevolent force was at work as it could make things worse. But Maurice, he had reached his breaking point. He entered the greenhouse and challenged the entity to reveal itself and to come after him. In that moment, a loose board from within the greenhouse propelled itself across the room, striking Maurice in the head as Nancy looked on in shock. The impact knocked him unconscious, and Nancy realized she had to get him out of there. She managed to drag him outside, where the cold air seemed to revive him, and remarkably, he wasn't seriously injured. Now, even though the Warrens were at that moment also dealing with another pretty severe case, almost 200 miles away, Ed felt compelled, for some reason, to make an unexpected visit to Maurice's house one morning due to a strong premonition that he had had. When he got to the house, Ed found Maurice sitting outside, tears streaming down his face. When Ed approached and asked Maurice about what was troubling him, Maurice confessed that he had attempted self-harm the previous night, but had been unable to go through with it. He had been sitting on the porch trying to get the courage to try again when Ed arrived at his driveway. Now, Ed was well aware that one indicator of possession is the malevolent spirit's inclination to drive the host to inflict harm upon themselves. To a demon, it is an objective to extinguish the life within a body created in God's image. Ed had a talk with Maurice, and they eventually made their way back into the house where the other volunteers were. Now, having things under control for the time being, Ed felt it was all right for him to leave, making sure that others paid close attention to Maurice. One of the volunteers assisting the Warrens diligently documented the occurrences inside the Thoreau home, 
And in one entry, he recorded, quote, 10.30 p.m., Maurice's entire body is in pain with every muscle aching. A foul odor of dog excrement permeates the house. The room alternates between bone-chilling cold and stifling heat, causing nausea. Maurice's son-in-law, Rick, mentioned that whenever the family visits the farm, unusual physical pains afflict them. Researchers also report severe toothaches or unexplained bodily pains. Now, Nancy, in the meantime, she's doing her best to keep herself together. The Warrens had provided her with several prayers to recite, and she diligently said them nearly all day, every day. One morning, both she and Maurice woke up with rosary beads in their hands, unable to explain how they had gotten there. Maurice firmly believed that his torment was the work of his father from beyond the grave. He longed for an ordinary, mundane life like most other people. So one day, he decided to visit the gravesite of his mom and dad, who were buried side by side. Nancy went with him, and Ed encouraged Nancy to bring a vial of holy water and a camera just in case something unusual happened. And indeed, it did. Maurice knelt in front of the gravesite, and he began to pray. Suddenly, it seemed as though an unseen force had struck him so hard under the chin that it sent him flying backward. Nancy managed to snap a photo of the incident before rushing to her husband's side where she found him bleeding from the nose. As night fell, the disturbances intensified. In their hallway, Nancy could only watch in horror as Maurice appeared to be tossed back and forth against the walls. And then he began to spin uncontrollably. Throughout this whole ordeal, he screamed for whatever was tormenting him to leave him alone. Nancy rushed to his side and began to pray fervently. Gradually, Maurice's violent movements ceased. The bishop, who had been kept informed of Maurice's ongoing struggles, dispatched two Catholic lay healers to assess the situation. Now, this was the final step before he would consider authorizing an exorcism. Maurice and Nancy were told to expect the two men, and when they arrived, they sat with Maurice and placed their hands on him and began to pray. As they did, Maurice's face began to change, and he started to laugh in a voice that wasn't his own. Blood and something resembling thick yellow bile began to fall from Maurice's mouth. The healers continued to pray. When they had finished, they felt a sense of accomplishment and relief, and so did Maurice. In the following days, Maurice had to continue his farming, uh, particularly attending to his tomato stand, which was crucial for the family's livelihood. And as he was out on his tractor one day, frustration just finally overcame him. And he looked at the sky and shouted, why are you letting him torment me like this? To his astonishment, when he opened his eyes, a man stood in the field before him. The stranger had a gentle face and long hair, unlike anyone 
Maurice had seen on his farm before. Confused, Maurice wondered why this man was in the middle of his field and asked not very nicely, who are you? You're not supposed to be here. Get off my field. The mysterious figure calmly said, stop your laboring. Maurice, he was near the end of his day's work, refused to stop. The mysterious man persisted, asking, don't you think you've done enough for today? His voice carried a hint of familiarity that gave Maurice pause. Now, the Warrens had cautioned Maurice that if the entity were to reveal itself, it might do so in a manner that resembled something pleasing. Despite this warning, Maurice attempted to carry on with his work. However, he soon discovered that the tractor's tires had gone flat. When he looked back up, the man was gone. It wasn't until later that Maurice realized the familiar-looking and sounding man was the same one who had come to his aid when he was a young boy on the day he had fallen asleep in a snowbank. Ed and Lorraine Warren had returned to the Thoreau home, and suddenly Nancy rushed into the room where they were sitting urgently, urging them to come and witness something just astonishing. A heavy tray with four cups miraculously balanced atop a flimsy curtain rod in the living room, leaving Nancy stunned. She had just been searching for a tray to serve some food, and there it was, just sitting on a curtain rod. The church had been taking its time, approving an exorcism, and Ed felt the need that an exorcism had to happen sooner rather than later. So he decided to reach out to his friend, Bishop Robert McKenna, who lived not far from the Warrens. However, Bishop McKenna's involvement was considered controversial within the church, and this controversy stemmed from his refusal to switch from Latin to English during Mass, as he firmly believed that Latin was the proper language for the ceremony. In the meantime, one of the Warrens' volunteers had begun to talk with Maurice about muscle strength, telling him about how often he worked out and what he could lift. When he asked Maurice how he got so strong, Maurice said that his strength came from the spirits. Intrigued, Maurice decided to demonstrate this phenomenon to the young man. They went outside, and Maurice, without breaking a sweat, lifted a life-sized cement statue on the front lawn, leaving the young man astonished. He took a photo of this incredible feat. When the young man, who was physically fit himself, attempted to lift the statue, he couldn't even budget. He asked Maurice how he had done it. And Maurice replied that he simply just called upon the spirits and had been doing so his whole life. Finally, the church sent a priest to perform what was essentially an exorcism, although the priest preferred to refer to it as a deliverance rather than using the formal term of exorcism. And the actions of this man uh, closely mirrored what the bishop had done in the church office 
which even included Maurice's reaction with the blood and the bile coming from his mouth. Now, after this session, the Thoreaus went back home, accompanied by the Warrens and their volunteer crew. And despite the earlier exorcism-like ceremony, uh, strange occurrences continued in the home. One entry in the notes of the volunteers read, quote, fire in the greenhouse seems to be a car coming. Sonny and Rick went outside to investigate. They could not see or hear anything. Just before Sonny and Rick came back inside, it happened again. Chris called from the bedroom, stating he was very dizzy in one corner of the room. Everyone is becoming weak and lightheaded. On another evening, Nancy went to bed early while the group stayed up with Maurice. Their conversation steered clear of the unusual events in the house when suddenly Maurice grew irritated and out of nowhere, a glass ashtray sitting on a table completely exploded. All eyes turned to Maurice, who appeared to be in some kind of trance. The following night, the activity escalated. Scratching noises that sounded like hundreds of rats filled the air. The television in the living room that had been shut off turned on and began blaring. The group was well aware that the hours between 9 p.m. and 4 a.m. are often referred to as psychic hours, during which preternatural events uh, tend to occur. So at around one in the morning, the group heard the distinct sound of car doors slamming, but when they looked outside, no vehicles were in sight. Then the sound of a police radio came from the hallway, yet there were no police officers present. A statue that stood next to the television in the Thoreau home, and as the group settled down to sleep, one of them suddenly screamed, claiming that the statue had spoken to her and told her to leave the house. Upon hearing about the latest incidents, the Warrens realized they couldn't wait for the church to send a true exorcist, as it was evident that the previous attempts hadn't worked on Maurice. So Ed immediately contacted Bishop McKenna, and after hearing the story, the bishop knew that he had to act quickly. Shortly after their conversation, the Warrens and the bishop arrived at the Thoreau's home. The bishop asked Maurice to take a seat in a chair placed in the middle of the room. The Warrens still had their helpers with them, standing behind Maurice in case he attempted anything during the exorcism. The bishop began to pray aloud, and within moments, Maurice's eyes began to bleed. Now, initially, it was just a few drops, but it quickly turned into streams. The bishop began with the Lord's Prayer, and as he did, everyone in the room began to hear loud banging sounds coming from the couple's bedroom. The banging started relatively quiet, but then progressively grew louder as if trying to drown out the bishop's words. All of a sudden, the banging abruptly stopped. But in its place, they heard voices coming from the kitchen. 
The voices were unintelligible, but it sounded as if a group of people were gathered there. And then just as suddenly as they had started, those voices fell silent. The bishop continued his prayers, reciting the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed three times each before moving on to the Litany of the Saints. Quote, St. John, pray for us. St. Peter, pray for us. St. Paul, pray for us. And he continued until he had completed the litany. Finally, he reached for the ritual book used by exorcists titled The Roman Ritual of Exorcism. The bishop began the rite by invoking God's help and continued with the ritual. When the time came for the bishop to compel the evil spirit to reveal its name, he confronted Maurice and demanded that the entity say its name. Once more, the banging noises resounded throughout the house, then quickly stopped. They heard what seemed like a car door slamming shut, but when they checked, there was nothing to be found. Blood continued to fall down Maurice's face as the bishop continued. Soon, sweat appeared on Maurice's forehead, and he began to move in his chair. He sweat so much that his shirt became saturated, and now, mixed with the blood, it all began to emit a horrible stench. Crosses seemed to have been seared into Maurice's palms. Ed, during the exorcism, started to feel nauseated. Not from what he was witnessing. He had witnessed it before. This was something different. The bishop traced the sign of the cross on Maurice's forehead and continued with the exorcism. Suddenly, Maurice's facial features underwent a disturbing transformation. His complexion shifted from red to a brownish gray. His nose got wider and flatter, while deep lines etched into his forehead. His brow drooped over his eyes, which transformed into slits. His entire appearance began to look like some kind of reptile. Maurice began to get up from his chair, prompting the helpers standing behind him to grab hold of him. Simultaneously, Ed clutched his chest, overwhelmed by a sensation of immense weight pressing upon it, making it difficult to breathe. Maurice, in his agitated state, kicked and thrashed. It took seven men to forcibly restrain him and return him to the chair. Once they succeeded, it appeared as if his entire body had suddenly relaxed. Almost immediately after Maurice's sudden relaxation, a lamp sitting on a nearby table fell to the floor, shattering upon impact. A painting hanging on the wall began to rattle, and the lights in the room began to flicker on and off. Then an eerie silence settled in. The bishop, attempting to communicate with Maurice, called out his name, but the response he received was not Maurice's. Instead, an ominous voice proclaimed, I am what I am. 
Undeterred, the bishop invoked the name of God, demanding to know the entity's name. But once again, the reply echoed back. No matter how many times the bishop pressed the entity to reveal its name, it responded with the same phrase. When asked about its number, the entity asserted, I am the only one. The bishop persisted, his determination unshaken, and asked yet again, What is your name? In response to the bishop's persistent questioning, the spirit finally uttered, which translated loosely in Latin to, you say I'm proud. When the bishop repeatedly inquired about the spirit's purpose for being there, it remained silent. Undaunted, the bishop turned back to the exorcism book, resuming the ritual. As he sprinkled holy water on Maurice, a remarkable transformation began to unfold before their eyes. Maurice's contorted face gradually returned to its normal state, leaving those present in awe, wondering if the man they once knew was truly back. With a sense of relief, Maurice reached for a towel and wiped his face, breaking into a reassuring smile. It was unmistakably Maurice once again. Ed assured Maurice that he was finally free and Maurice could feel the difference almost immediately. He finally felt normal, something he'd always wanted. With the exorcism complete, the bishop concluded the ritual with a prayer of gratitude. As Ed and Lorraine drove back home, Ed was unusually quiet. Lorraine was worried because this wasn't like Ed, especially after what they had just witnessed. His complexion was pale and he just wasn't acting like himself. When they got home, Ed headed straight to bed. The next morning, he usually would have gotten up and gone over the notes from the previous day, but he didn't. When it got to lunchtime, he told Lorraine that the food didn't have any taste, yet she could taste everything just fine. Suddenly, Ed broke into a sweat and collapsed to the ground. Ed had suffered a severe heart attack that landed him in the hospital for a grueling 17 days. Medical professionals revealed that the heart attack had been ongoing for a continuous 24-hour period which indicated that it had actually begun during the exorcism. Upon his release from the hospital, Ed received strict instructions to take it easy for the next few months. And this directive effectively meant that he had to put on hold any further cases during that time. After the exorcism, Maurice, feeling as if his problems were finally over, was dealt another blow. This time, though, it wasn't spiritual. The Waitley police chief had learned that Maurice's stepdaughter had come forward to say that Maurice had violated his stepdaughter multiple times when she was a child. However, she insisted it wasn't actually Maurice. It was someone who merely resembled him. The police chief was highly skeptical of her account. He visited Maurice's farmhouse, only to find that Maurice wasn't there. 
he instructed Nancy to have Maurice come down to the police station. Later that day, Maurice did come down to the police station, and during this visit, he was told that he was being arrested and why he was being arrested. He was utterly shocked, as he had no idea what the chief was referring to. When Maurice requested a lawyer, the police chief had to stop questioning him, and instead what he did is he focused on completing the necessary paperwork. As he glanced up at Maurice after jotting down some details, a disturbing sight was in front of him. Maurice began to bleed from his mouth with bubbles of blood emerging from his nose. And then an ominous voice spoke, saying, You and I are going to be together for a long, long time. It became evident that the entity within Maurice had not truly left. Maurice was indeed arrested. The following day, during their appearance before a judge, Maurice began to experience convulsions, and an ambulance had to be called. Now, surprisingly, no one was willing to accompany Maurice in the back of the ambulance, not even the medical personnel. They were all too afraid. Ultimately, Maurice was never convicted. Nevertheless, due to the legal expenses incurred in hiring a lawyer, which exceeded their financial means, they were compelled to sell their farm. Now, although Maurice occasionally exhibited unusual behaviors, they became infrequent over time. And according to the Warrens, such behaviors were considered normal and tend to subside gradually. However, it appeared that Maurice was never entirely free from the entity's grip. In May of 1982, one of the authors of the book, Satan's Harvest, had made a call to Nancy to see how things were doing or were going. And during the conversation, Nancy told him that she and Maurice had separated and that her husband had been displaying strange behavior again. It had evidently become so bad that Nancy had even put a restraining order on Maurice. One day, Maurice arrived at Nancy's home but Nancy wasn't there. So he sat and he waited for her. As she drove up the driveway, Maurice went outside and waited. As she began walking towards him, he pulled out a gun and shot Nancy. He then went back into the house and turned the gun on himself. Maurice ended up shooting Nancy in the arm, which ultimately led to the amputation of her arm from the elbow down. And fortunately, she survived. Uh, Maurice, however, did not. It seemed that whatever had a grip on Maurice for his entire life refused to let him go. Whatever it was finally got what it wanted to have Maurice harm himself. It had finally succeeded. To learn more, and there is far, far more to learn, I promise you that, I suggest you pick up the book Satan's Harvest, which details Maurice's case. And I'll have a link to the show notes, um, link in the show notes for you. I'll also have links to all of the uh, newspaper articles and, and anything else that I may have referenced throughout this podcast. Nonetheless, this has been a, uh, a long one. 
and um, hard to hear. You know, you you feel for Maurice, or at least I do. Uh, I can't speak for you, but at least I do. He had uh, one hell of a, a life. No matter what you believe, had a hold on Maurice. There is no doubt that what he had to endure in his life was heartbreaking. And that'll do it for this episode of the Beach House 34 True Crime and Paranormal Podcast. Uh, If you like this, again, please uh, give it a thumbs up, uh, make a comment. Um, Anything really, anything is is helpful. Uh, If you want to subscribe, that would be great too. I would love that. So I'll be back soon with another um, instance of the Darley Routier trial, which is coming up. And then uh, probably get into at least one or two more paranormal episodes with Halloween approaching. So we will definitely talk soon. Thank you.